Hey there, friends. Welcome to Having a Blast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing deep dives on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. And today I'm really excited because I had a long conversation with my good friend Ben, the frontman for the band The Way Way Back. Ben is someone I've known for a few years now. I met him when he was working at local theater that I would go to a lot. We got to talking and he let me know that he at one point had attended some shows of my old band and always really enjoy talking to Ben. Ben's one of those infectious personalities. Anytime you're around him, you just feel good. And he's just a very funny, charismatic dude. We had a really fun time discussing and doing a deep dive on the album So Long Astoria by a legendary pop punk band, The Ataris. And So Long Astoria was released in 2003, which kind of keeps it in the theme of where we've been in the pop punk timeline. Last episode, we talked about The Artist in the Ambulance, which came out in the same year. That was a great year for music. We also get a chance to talk about The Way Way Back, their most recent EP, which is fantastic. It's called Baggage or You're Never gonna leave it all behind and it was definitely one of my favorite eps of the year if not just favorite records in general for 2020 it is on all the streaming networks they've got some other eps on there as well those are both fantastic as well we talk about not only the history of the album but we we talk about a lot of things in this episode it was just a lot of fun and i really think people are going to enjoy listening to this conversation ben shared with me something that was deeply personal to him a meaning of one of the songs on the latest ep from the way way back and there was a moment where I literally got choked up. I was getting emotional listening to him tell his story and I think it'll be something that a lot of people can resonate with. So without further ado, enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with my good buddy Ben from The Way Way Back where we discuss the Atari's album So Long Astoria. thing that's actually one of my new year's resolutions i want to reorganize my books in color order yeah that's how i did it for the last few years pamela actually helped me with that i love it i absolutely love it yeah yeah yeah. i i saw i I can't remember i don't know it's probably like a twitch streamer i like or somebody sorry i can never tell what to do with my hair at this length i need to be careful (laughs) it's it's only it's always in the way yeah (laughs) i like it thanks the only problem with doing it this way like arranging your books by color is (laughs) when you get new books and yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, they're already in their place. You know what I mean? It's hard to make. Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I used to have uh, too small of a shelf for my vinyl, and I have that alphabetized by band and then by order of release. So, like for example, like that, I have the Beatles, but then like I have like Rubber Soul before Abbey Road, if if that makes sense. And then that would just mess with my mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I used to work at a Blockbuster, so like I have very specific subdivisions and stuff, like. Okay, my wife and I have had this fight. I'm, I'm curious about your opinion, okay? So, like, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, okay? Mm-hmm. They're called Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. On your DVD shelf, would they be together as Batman, comma, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises? Or would they be spread out, Batman Begins, and the B, Dark Knight Rises, and D, and so on? There's probably something incredibly boring and what's the right word plain for lack uh-huh. of a better word in the way in which i would organize them because i would which literally is. organize them based on when they came out chronological <laughs> so you, you're in okay you want to do the whole chronological chronologically 
Like yeah. your whole DVD shelf, not just those movies, but all of it. No, just those. If we're talking just those, I would. That's something yeah, yeah, that I've yeah, never, yeah. I've never done. I've never arranged my DVDs or Blu-rays. Okay. Yeah. And what's interesting is I'm so disconnected from the Blu-rays and the DVDs that I own now. I literally put them all in a CD case a long, long time ago, and they're sitting in a shelf somewhere. They're just there. Oh man, I love yeah. it. So the you only have thing I really answer. have on this. Yeah, the only thing I have on display right now are books. I mean, you mentioned vinyl earlier, and there's something deeply upsetting and anxiety-inducing about starting to buy vinyl, because where does it end, you know? Oh, dude, yeah, so that's, I started fairly young, relatively, especially for like a millennial. My parents listen to good music. I don't know if we should save that for the microphone or for the podcast or not. Are we recording? I don't know. We're recording. But, it's all good. Okay. But I don't know if you want this podcast or not, but my parents, they listen to really good music. I grew up listening to just, just great stuff. They listen to stuff that's just a little on the softer side than what I like. But I mean, like Simon and Garfunkel is kind of sure. like our exact meeting of the Venn diagram, but they like Jackson Brown and Elton John. But then they also like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Who and the Stones. And so, I mean, I grew up listening to, I, I think, really great music. Absolutely. And I found out in college, I started collecting vinyl because punk bands started doing vinyl releases. And I started buying vinyls before I had a record player because I just was like, I want to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Newfound Glory Sticks and Stones being out and, and buy this record. And yeah. then I found out in, co- in college that my parents had not just gotten rid of their vinyl collection, they had thrown it away. One day they wow. had literally set it out with the trash because they were like, well, vinyl will never come back. And I like, I mean, I love their taste in music. So like, who knows what all yeah. they threw away? Oh. What a bummer. It, it makes me sad to think about it. That is tragic. Yeah. <laughs> Just to think about it. You know, my parents, they still have a lot of their vinyl. And it's interesting because my parents, they'll go through seasons where they'll start to purge things similar to what you just mentioned. And they don't necessarily purge all of their records, but they sort of haphazardly put them in storage areas, sure. sitting in a stack collecting dust. So Right. Yeah. And if they're like, if they're stacked vertically, that's bad. Like they can warp. If they're in too right. much heat, they can start to like literally change shape. Oh, that's why vinyl um, gives me so much anxiety, dude. I get it. No, no, no. You're probably right to not start because you're right that defining the line is difficult. Because... <laughs> There are so many records. Well, because here's the thing I get into. I like to buy now anytime, because now that vinyl's like back, baby, like anytime a band that I really like comes out with a new record, I like to buy it on vinyl because let's be frank, I'm probably not going to buy it digitally. I'm probably going to listen to it on Spotify, but then that way I can support the band. Well, so yeah. then like my vinyl collection ends up being disproportionately classic rock that I got at like vintage stock or at flea markets for like for cheap or brand spank and new email and punk. And then I start to do this thing where I'm like, well, this doesn't represent, you know, I own 120 records, but I don't own maybe more than like four of my 25 favorite records of all time. So I should probably buy all 25, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And then it just spirals out of control real fast. Absolutely. Yeah. I I own Dookie on vinyl because it's my favorite record of all time. And it's just nice to kind of like hold it. Yeah. And the artwork, the artwork that big, that's, that's what it is for vinyl for me is a great cover, kind of like the album that we're going to talk about today, seeing it blown up mm-hmm. at, in holding it and looking at it while you're listening to it. There's something yeah. very romantic about that to me. And gosh, Dookie's a great one to have because that album yeah. artwork is, it's, I mean, Iconic. it's one of the best, one of the best album covers of all time. Well, it's one of the best albums of all time too, but. Yeah, it just so happens to have this amazing cover art as well, which is lucky for them. Right time, right place. They happen to use a, an artist from 
the Bay Area. Where I was from. about to say it's it's like a local artist that they were at least acquaintances with, right? Yeah, yeah. It was someone that apparently went to a bunch of their shows and did seven inch art for a lot of the bands that they grew up with. So cool. But yeah, it, you know, I miss the tangible nature of holding something in your hand that's associated yes. with music. I do miss that. I miss opening the CD case, looking through the lyrics, and reading the thank you notes, and looking at all the producer notes and everything. Who all worked on the record? Yes, because yes. there's so many records now that come out. And I'd really love to know the personnel behind this. Oh my gosh, especially hip hop. Like, because there's so much great new, like young, like literally they're like 19 year olds putting out hip hop that you're like, I, I, I don't know anything about you. Like, like, like yeah. I, I actually right. don't know where do I find out anything, uh, you know? No, I'm with you. I have a very short attention span and a very f- rapidly moving mind. And one of the reasons I really like going to movie theaters is because it's like, you have to put your phone away. You have to sit in this chair and watch the movie and really focus on it. And vinyl is the same for me, but for music, I put my phone away. I pull out the album. I look at, I'm physically holding the sleeve and I'm looking at the lyrics and I'm looking at the credits and I can't skip. If I don't like a song, I have to listen all the way through it, which is great because then it forces you to, to discover songs that you like. Oh, you know what? If I was listening on Spotify, I would have skipped this song. I didn't realize that the bridge is really cool. I didn't know it like switched to halftime on the bridge and that this cool riff comes in. There's something about the way it makes me pay attention that I find really, for lack of better words, romantic. Like I, I it really like pulls me in and I, oh. That's a really great point, actually. I never really thought about it that way, but vinyl, what's so special about it is it does force you to be present in the moment with the music. Yes. It forces you to discover things about it that maybe you wouldn't have necessarily taken the time I, to do. I would argue that there's like a direct correlation between like, and I don't want to be like dramatic here, but we are kind of in the middle of experiencing sort of the death of the album, certainly as the dominant release form of music media the death of the album, I think it correlates with the death of vinyl because vinyl caused you to sit and consume an entire side of a record. And honestly, like cassettes, like you could fast forward, but skipping a song, the way that an iPod lets you skip a song, the way that Spotify lets you skip a song, the way that a Walkman let you skip a song, that was a new invention that really changed how you consumed a record as a whole. And I I do think there's a correlation there of bands started to feel more okay with putting filler tracks on records because filler was easier to skip. And then I think slowly but surely, not all bands, of course, but, you know, certain bands, especially on like mainstream labels, started to kind of betray the trust of the public. And then like, I remember at a point where like, I felt like every album had like 15 or 16 songs. And you're like, this is too many tracks for most records. There are a couple of records where you're like, give me more, give me more. But like- Unless you're rancid. Yeah, we're right, sure, sure. If you're kicking out like two minute, 12 second songs, absolutely. But like, like Led Zeppelin 4 is like maybe the best record. It's up there. It's like one of the best records of all time. And it has like nine tracks, you know? And like, it's because it's nine juicy, sink your teeth into it tracks. And I don't know, they're- I feel like there's something there, but yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. And Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, they weren't thinking, hmm, we need a couple of throwaway tracks on the Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. They like this, they were conceptualizing it as people are gonna listen. Well, a great example, you know, like probably, probably not personally my favorite pick, but like probably like the consensus pick of the greatest album of all time is Abbey Road, right? And the side A of Abbey Road ends with I want you, she's so heavy. And the way that that song ends is it literally stops because they knew that that was going to be the last song on side A. So they kept jamming and kept jamming until it ran out of space on the wax. So like they recorded more song than they ended up committing to the album, knowing that the medium of a vinyl record 
was going to run out of space, which I just think is brilliant. I think it's like, yeah. it's kind of fourth wall breaking, honestly. Like it's like when a character in a book calls attention to you, the reader, you know, like, like they decided to end the side of the record by just like having it run out of music. That's so cool. <laughs> Have you watched big mouth on Netflix? Oh my gosh. I, the way that I watch binge mouth, binge, you know, binge mouth. Exactly. Uh, big mouth <laughs> is it's unhealthy. I like every time a new season comes out, I'm like, okay, this time I'm going to space it out. I watch every single episode in two weeks. I, I just yeah. like, I can't help myself. Yeah. What you said, it just reminded me of that, the way they're always acknowledging the audience and they make fun oh, of, yeah. they poke fun of people who watch and binge Netflix shows. It's just, yes. it's like part of the medium, you know? That's what's interesting. I, though, I feel both just... respected and attacked at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, you're right. The medium influences the art. Yes. I mean, nowadays, GarageBand and Ableton and, the fact that you can have a very minimal setup for recording is dictating what sort of art is then being created. Mm -hmm. And then the ways in which it's distributed, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, that sort of thing, even Instagram and all the social media is how it's been sent out into the world and distributed. That's something I haven't really thought about, but I feel like you could have a, an entire discussion about that, that alone, the way art influences the medium and vice versa. Yeah. Because I don't quite want to say a snake eating its own tail because it's not it's not that because it's, it's actually a snake like pushing itself forward. But it, but yeah, it, it is really interesting to like stop and look. I mean, I think that's why we're in like a real golden age of hip hop right now is that like maybe the best genre to just like produce alone in your room with one computer is mm. that kind of trap style hip hop. All you really need is a killer beat. You obviously need somebody who is genuinely naturally talented at finding like where lyrics need to sit in a beat, right? Like that's like the, the skill that can't really be taught. But if you you yeah. have that and you have an ear for production, you can do the whole thing in your bedroom and it will sound sure. almost as good as like a top-notch recording studio. Whereas like yeah. if you want to do a really, really good rock band, it's hard to make a record. Even like if you're only doing two or three songs, it's hard to do it for less than a couple thousand dollars. It's just, it's just very hard. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And even that's getting easier all the time. True. Very true. Very true. Yeah. But you're right. Hip hop, that's definitely low barrier to entry, which is good because it, evens the playing field, which is great Absolutely. for all artists, you know, because there's so many people that probably didn't have the opportunity even 10 years ago to put out a mixtape or something or just show the world how talented they are, or what their potential is as far as that goes, because they don't have the setup to create the beats that they can flow over and that they can a hundred percent. I mean, like I remember yeah. being in high school and bands and like literally saving every single penny that we could from our like part-time jobs to record one or two songs. Yeah. Looking back, we were able to get an EP done basically because a couple of our parents threw in some money. And even then we were, you know, it wasn't like the highest level of recording quality or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, like it, I do every now and then it makes me feel like a little bit of an old man, but I do every now and then look at the technology that's available now and, and be like, wait, had that back in my day <laughs> that's amazing no i do too but i'm just stoked because yeah this is great for kids because they can get an outlet out you know there's pros and cons obviously because you're gonna have so much more noise you know around you so you gotta really cut yeah. through somehow i remember game time the only reason we were able to record is because we were we recorded really late at night so we'd go over to keith caster's house yeah. and he would allow us to basically hang out on a friday or a saturday night until 3 or 4 a.m after he had done his paid gig yep and he'd work with us until about 11 or midnight and then we'd be up until three just kind of figuring it out on our own my um, high school being blackmore we, we recorded our second record 
at Black Lodge, rest in power, in uh, Eudora, in Studio B, and our sessions would start at midnight. Like 12.01 was the start of the session because the <laughs> rates were like, I think half or maybe even a third what they were during the day. And that's how we recorded that collection yeah. of set six or seven songs was like between 12 and three or four and then driving home from Eudora to Gladstone, probably I don't know, at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half drive at like four yeah. o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say when the sun's coming up. Exactly. That's amazing, man. That's cool. I miss those times. Those were good times. Absolutely. So, man, we can discuss the Ataris. I've been listening to this record all day today. So yeah. It's been fun to revisit it. Oh, my gosh. The Ataris. We're going to do a deep dive on So Long Astoria, which I feel like you could do a deep dive on the Ataris in general. I mean, they're kind of a complicated band. I think Chris any, I Rowe, have been thinking about this. Yes. Uh, sorry, not to interrupt, but I have no, been no, thinking no, about this. They are a fascinating band to think about, to think about their place in like, you know, kind of warped core emo punk history. They're a fascinating band to think about as like kind of a parable, kind of cautionary tale. They are a fascinating band to think about on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. Eloquently put, for sure. Cautionary tale, especially over the last, I'd say, 12 years or so. Yeah. Which is, it's interesting how your perception of time changes as you get older. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but... Oh, but it's wild. I think of, yeah, <laughs> I think of when I first heard the Ataris to So Long Astoria and what a massive gargantuan space of time that felt like yeah. versus 2003 to now or 2008 to now, the last 12 years. Sure, sure. It feels like somehow the same length of time, but it's almost double or even more than that. You're, spe you're speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what happens when you get older, right? Like time, dude, the yeah. perception of things just gets a little bit warped, a little bit different. Totally. Yeah, not to like, I don't th want this to become a cul-de-sac, but like my band, The Way Way Back, we're in the currently, we've released two out of three of this trilogy that's called Monochopsis, which Monochopsis is the distinct feeling that you're in the incorrect place or time. And we're releasing a series of three EPs. So like one is about being in the future, but fixated on the past. The second is about being stuck in the current, like in the present, but feeling like you should be moving towards the future. And the third, the one that we're writing right now is about being in the future, shaped by the things before you and feeling like you should still be further than you are. And like, I think about this all the time. There are certain periods of your life that feel like endless. And then there are others that feel just an instant. And the guitarists absolutely fit what you're talking about. Because like, I think of, I got to know them in, I guess it would have been. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you're when just, was the first time you sure. heard? Yeah, you're just a couple years older than me. But I I was obsessed with, <laughs> I won't quite necessarily say in love with, this girl named Sarah, who people who listen who know me know that my wife's name is Sarah. This is not the same Sarah. In middle school, I named my first guitar after her. She was this very cool punk rock, awesome person. And I, I was just like, obsessed with her we dated for a minute and then i was not a very cool person at all in middle school i was so square but she <laughs> wanted to be my friend and was kind enough to just introduce me to like so many fantastic bands and she made me three burnt cds for, for the brief window of time when we were dating which was the atari's look forward to failure ep rufio's perhaps i suppose and taking back Sunday, but it wasn't tell all your friends. It was like demos right before that record came out. And yeah. uh, so this was, I guess, probably like fall of 2000, spring of 2001. And I liked all three of those bands a lot. I ended up listening to Rufio a ton. Taking back Sunday, I was slow to get to, but then I think I also later found out, like I said, I think those were 
they were demos or like maybe an EP they recorded before Tell All Your Friends came out because it, it was like definitely not the same level of recording quality. Like I remember specifically Timberwolves of New Jersey was one of the songs that was on there. And I want to say Ghostman on third, but like it was an interest, like looking back on like thinking about Taking Back Sunday, it was a weird collection of songs that was on there. And then there was this EP, the Atari's Look Forward to Failure, which had San Dimas High School Football Rules, which ended up making it onto Blue Skies, Broken Hearts. It had this song called My So-Called Life that mm-hmm. I, is so charming and is about his obsession with Claire Danes and yep. uh, has a line in it that like is the most pre-9-11 lyric ever where he's like, I hijacked a plane and wrote your name in the sky, which is like kind of funny to think about. And like, I don't know, I was being exposed to it in like spring 2001. I think the record came out in 1997. And then this really great song called uh, My Special Girl that had guest vocals by Mark Hoppus, who at the time, you know, I was super into Blink-182. And I don't know, I just, I fell in love with, all three of those records that she burnt for me, but the one that I listened to just over and over and over and over again was this 15 minute long Atari's EP. And then I dove like head first into Atari's fandom and was very active on their websites, message boards. And what was really cool was right before this record came out a few years after that, Chris Rowe, the lead singer of the Atari's was like very present on the message boards and would like sprinkle demos and would like tease. Hey, this is going to be on the record. Hey, this isn't going to be on the record. And I ended up, I have this weird, what's it called? The Berenstein bears thing, Mandela effect. I have this like weird thing where like, Sometimes I can't remember if I heard a really early version of an Atari song that it actually existed or like one that didn't exist. So like, for example, on the title track, So Long Astoria, I am positive that I heard a demo of it that said, do you allow cussing on your podcast if it's a reference to a song lyric? I swear there was a version of it that said, does rebellion make a fucking difference? I swear that I have heard that, that that existed. And then like to, when I was researching for this, I looked all over the internet and I couldn't find it. And then like similarly on radio number two, there was a version that said, meet me at midnight at the broadcast tower high above the Hollywood sign. You bring your explosives and I'll bring my radio. And that I think also has, I couldn't find that either. And I sw- that one, I know because on the message boards, people were like, oh, what a sellout move to censor it, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it was like not that long after 9-11, there's no way they were going to allow lyrics on a record from Columbia about blowing up a building, you know. Um, But so it's really interesting because like there are versions of songs from this. And then the 10 year anniversary came out actually like a while ago now and they did release some demos and it was crazy because there were demos that i hadn't heard in 10 years actually well 12 years you know and then there were also others where i'm still like left feeling like a crazy person i know that i heard a version of so long a story where he said the f word i know it but i can't prove it (laughs) doesn't drive you crazy yeah it drives you crazy (laughs) they probably do exist because i was reading someone has to have them somewhere yeah, he said he was demoing quite a bit for this record beforehand because the writing was in the sand. They knew they were going to get signed to a major. They were just selling so many records on Kung Fu on an independent label. Yes. It was weird, too, because I remember when Indus Forever came out, I assumed they were going to be picked up by a major. It was almost like they had to release one more record because of their contract obligations mm-hmm. with Kung Fu. And I remember not really caring for Indus Forever. I like a few songs on that record. I feel the exact same way. I don't think that's I don't think that record has a very strong identity. I think yeah. that 
Blue Skies, Broken Hearts, anywhere but here, and this one. Even even the follow-up to this has an identity. The only one of their full lengths that to me doesn't have like an identity is End is Forever. And it feels yeah. like, to me, it feels like the chrysalis where like the caterpillar has entered the chrysalis and it's not a butterfly yet. And this is the record that they were going to grow into, but they just weren't there yet. It's funny to listen to that record knowing what they became because it kind of almost feels like they wanted to... For a minute there, they were doing this really cutesy... Reliant K kind of comes to mind. Like, very tongue-in-cheek. I love San Dimas High School Football Rules. So it's one of my favorite songs I've ever written. But it's so cute. It's so, like, you know, like... I'd even have Wayne Newton dedicate a song to you. It's such a, like, cute lyric, you know? Mm-hmm. And And Is Forever, I think, was, like, torn between... Do we like how cute we are? Or do we want to be a little bit more serious? And... yeah. I love where they landed, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the Look Forward to Failure EP because that's where I kind of discovered them. That's so interesting because that's such a random record, but I actually have several friends who, it must have gotten out in the right way. I, I don't know. Well, it was Fat. Fat Records put it out. That's right. It was Fat because Joey Cape was one of the co-producers of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember exactly where I was reading the liner notes where I saw that Mark Hoppus did the backup vocals for one of the songs. I forget yep. which one it was. It's it's my special girl because it's like at the end, okay. it's like, where will I find my special girl? And then you can, if you listen really close, then you do hear Mark's voice on the echo. That's on what the, I like thought. In response. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was him even then, because it kind of, it's mixed so well. It sounds like Chris just it, you totally, know, totally him or it's just that callback. I was obsessed with compilations back then. It seems to be. Oh a my gosh. Absolutely. That was like lifeblood. Yeah. And I was listening to bands like Assorted Jelly Beans and the Vandals and punk rock bands. And I remember buying a Kung Fu Records sampler. I probably still have it somewhere in, in a CD case, but it had a couple of demos for Blue Skies. And then I saw that Fat was putting out the EP because they put San Dimas on Life in the Fat Lane. And that was 1998, probably the beginning of 1998 when that comp was released. Yeah. So it was a perfect storm. You know, at that point I had been, I'd spent a year listening to, to Dude Ranch. So the next evolution I think is expansion of pop punk with more emo lyrics. You said cute lyrics, but it was, they were talking a lot about relationships and- Oh, almost exclusively. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, I, and I think that's something like, there's a song called My Hotel Year that's on Look Forward to Failure. And then there's an acoustic version of it on Blue Skies. Mm-hmm. And that one to me is very like pre-dashboard, very introspective. I'm really talking about my feeling like American football. Like I want to talk about how my heart feels kind of. Sure. Totally. Yeah. And everything else prior to that was very descendants, very all very sped up pop punk, essentially, you know, just kind of the next wave of evolution of that. And I just love that EP. That EP is still so punchy. It's just so nice. And I listened to it last night and I, I not only do, do I still really like it, I prefer it to like and this seems like crazy to say but like i definitely prefer it over end is forever and i might even prefer it over blue skies broken hearts I, it's just so yeah. efficient it just like i i can't and part of it is the production but also mm. part of it is just that like there's just no fat at all and it just feels like this is what i want to say this is what we want to do let's do it and then it's over and i, I yeah. really admire that yeah no i feel the exact same way i love blue skies and that record i think is become more special as time has moved on just because i love the sound of it i love that late 90s pop punk sound and i even keep going back and rediscovering bands last year i really went back into smoking pope's catalog oh nice i need to give them a deep dive 
they're great and what's a record very that you recommend for like a for a first like if i really want to sink my teeth into smoking popes what's an album or i listen like? so i listen to their newest record the one that they put out last oh, year or rad, 2019 rad. yeah it's sort of like uh blue skies only now you know what's uh, funny spotify really well. keeps pushing that on me and i haven't listened to it yet it's called spotify uh, has like done a really good job of being like you should listen to this new smoking popes and i'm like i'll get i'll get to it okay. <laughs> i love <laughs> I love how Spotify is always that friend that's telling you you have to listen to this band. Yeah. It can be a good and a bad thing, I think, sometimes. But it's called Into the Agony, I think. Okay, I'll I check that that's out. that's what it's called. And then I would check out their one from 97, which is called yeah. Destination Failure. I believe Destination you. Failure. <laughs> yeah, Destination yeah. Failure came out in 97. It still sounds great. The recording is good. That's when they got signed to Capitol, so they were on a major label. They had a major label budget. But it definitely that late 90s pop punk vibe you sure tell sure like every band was meandering into that territory it kind but of I, feels I, like I like in that era everybody was kind of like okay here's what we do like about grunge but here's what we don't like about grunge like they had already digested grunge and it like it it's really interesting uh the way that punk especially pop punk i think sounds right around like 1997 1998 where it's like grunge was king for a couple years there and everybody had a chance to like pick it apart and think about what they had to say about it and then moved mm -hmm. on from it. I really like that. Yeah. Which I also I think it really, it, no, happened you go. With the, it, <laughs> it happened with the death of Kurt Cobain. I think everybody. A hundred percent. I, I mean, yeah. like, I don't think by any means that Nirvana was the first grunge band, but like they were the most important grunge band. And when he yeah. died, it was like, no, no, the movement's over. Let's, let's move on. Like, I think it was just too heavy. It wasn't necessarily that he killed grunge when no, 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 no. he died. It was just, I think people needed something more fun. Yeah, I think it was, I totally agree. And what's interesting, like I always, I know this is not a Nirvana podcast, but I'll never get over the fact, you know, like their last proper release is in utero. And the, the way that All Apologies ends is like so much more like, you know, like the cello comes in and it's like, like really pretty. And like, I don't know, like I've always kind of like felt like when you listen to that song, like the sky kind of opens up. And it is weird that this band that had this really, really dark discography and, and, and darkness surrounding them ended on such a like sunlight coming through the clouds moment. I've always really found that to be like probably accidentally a really like beautiful thing about their discography. That's true. Yeah. I never thought about that, but you're right. That was the last official song that they released. I always yeah. get, it's sort of an amalgamation of albums for me because I was discovering all of them sort of the, at the same time. Same. It's definitely. Like, I got into Nirvana, I think right before In Utero came out because it was just oh, wow. all over the radio, but I was listening to the Muddy Banks of Wishka, that live album a lot. And I sure, was listening sure. to the Unplugged album. The Unplugged album is an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. See, I have a weird relationship with Nirvana because I was young enough that I totally missed them. And I actually absolutely hated them and hated grunge, like despised. I hated the way that vocals sounded in grunge. And I hated like one time I heard Kurt Cobain in an interview basically say that like lyrics don't matter and that like what matters more is melody. And as I've matured, I can understand what he meant. And like, I get what he's saying and, and like, I actually don't totally disagree with it. But like when I was like 12 and 13, I like, I so fundamentally disagreed with that, that it like outraged me. And then in high school, I was dating somebody who had, that's like when that Nirvana's greatest hits record came out that had like, you know, you're right on it, you know? Mm -hmm. And she always had that on her car. And I like, like slowly, but surely was like, every time I'd be like, whoa, who is this? I love this song. She'd be like, this is Nirvana. You like, nirvana i'm telling you you like nirvana and then like slowly but surely realized so i was like no i don't just like nirvana i love nirvana 
Yeah, I I wrote them off too hard. I think that if I can use that as a pivot, maybe back towards the Ataris, is that a really weird thing that I experienced with the Ataris was because I was such a big fan and I was really active on the message boards at the time that there was this very specific backlash to them getting a major label record deal, which like you said, felt inevitable at the time. So they signed to Columbia, they leave Kung Fu, they go to Columbia and this record becomes this very like in Atari's fandom, it it becomes just like the absolute epicenter of it. Like, like when is this record going to drop? What's it going to be like? What's it going to sound like? And some of the fans were really, really disgusted and outraged that they went with this like mainstream radio rock Foo Fighters kind of sound and some of the fans me like were like absolutely ecstatic about it and it was a really interesting record from within Atari's fandom because like I do think that a lot of their older fans especially fans who were really into like the Vandals and Descendants and fans like that really turned their back on them during this record I think ended up missing out on just like an absolute masterpiece but it was really interesting to watch in real time as demos would come out and certain fans would be absolutely stoked about a certain demo and others wouldn't and then I remember the big I don't know I have no idea what size of people I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Atari's message boards from 2002 but I do think that there was like this really interesting rift in the community where like if you listen to like the early demo of in this diary for example there's basically no palm muting it's very open strumming it's very like it's a little bit like early against me like it's very like punk rock Bruce Springsteen and I still think there's a lot of energy like that in the record but the record has a lot of palm muting and a lot of like dynamic shifts which is actually one of the reasons I love it so much is because it gets loud, quiet, loud, very quiet, very loud. And the records were pretty much all just like strumming, 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 straightforward, straightforward, maybe halftime here or there on something. But like, I found it, like, I liked the demos and I was very excited for the record. But when I ended up hearing what Lou Giordano had done as a producer to it, I was so thrilled and so ecstatic. And it was so strange to me that like, in Atari's fandom that that anybody who liked this band wasn't happy. Like, like I still to this day struggle to understand, like if you like the song Sandy and high school football rules, well, here's a great example is that like the bonus track is uh, uh, I won't ever spend another night alone. That song is on blue skies, broken hearts. And as I recall, and maybe my memory is failing me just a little bit, Chris Rowe wanted to include that as a bonus track because he felt like the version that's on Blue Skies didn't do the song he had in his head justice. He wanted to do a higher quality recording of it. And there were fans who were like, oh my gosh, the Blue Skies version so much better. And I just think that like, I know that music is very, very subjective and very rarely is music objective. But like as someone who does audio engineering myself, the So Long A Story version is like, objectively a better recording and it, it's so interesting to uh, to have witnessed that I don't know just just like yeah. it, it, for me it was a real growing moment of like toxic fandom and like I don't know I'm sure that everybody who's like a big fan of something goes through that at some point in time in their life but for me at my age it was the very first time I ever experienced like a fan base turning on something that I think is like kind of objectively beautiful 
It was happening with a lot of bands back then. It happened with Blink. It happened with Jimmy. It happened yep. with... Uh, Never understand how it happened with Jimmy Eat World. That's one of those ones where I'm like, you liked Clarity and you didn't like Bleed American? And you didn't like Futures? The idea that you like Clarity, but you don't like Futures. I'll never wrap my head around that. It's weird. I ask people oftentimes what their favorite Jimmy Eat World record is. And it's kind of interesting. You learn a lot about somebody based on their favorite Jimmy Eat oh, World Oh, yeah. Record. It's way more telling than their Zodiac sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's amazing how many people say, oh, I love Clarity and I love Futures. You're missing kind of a pivotal one right in the middle there. (laughs) You're missing one. Futures is my favorite, but like just by a hair and then Bleed American is my second favorite. Like, yeah. Oh, I love them all. I mean, Futures oh is a gosh. fantastic record. Yeah, but no, yeah, I, I agree. There are a lot of Jimmy Eat World fans who like, it, I've, I've had that exact experience and I'm so confused yeah. by it. I don't get it. Well, I like Green people... Day, when Green Day released Dookie, like a huge chunk of their fan base was like, this is trash. And it's like, yeah. no, it's a masterpiece on par with like Van Gogh's Starry Night. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, come on. It, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It really happened to bands like Jawbreaker too. Like Dear You is Oh my gosh. I know. Band-Aid. Like Rob Cavallo comes in and produces. Uh, dude, that record's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I, you know, I'm too young. I missed that. That's one of those ones that like I read on Wikipedia that fans hated Dear You. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? I watched the documentary and that was their demise. The fact that people just completely rejected Dear You is the reason Jawbreaker broke up, which is really tragic Ooh. because that's one of my favorite records of all time. Of all time. It's it's perfect. Accident prone. That's on the record, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. dude, that song's unreal. I, oh yeah. my gosh just a phenomenal record you know yeah. it's such a level up you know i i there's something exactly, exactly. it's a growth it's like it's a logical extension of what same with the ataris that's what I like yeah. what i didn't understand was if you like if you like your boyfriend sucks if you like you know my so-called life i get it i guess the songs are just like a little less cute and a little less pissy but like were the lyrics the only reason you liked the ataris because <laughs> i don't get it i'll never understand it now i uh you yeah. know we're talking about the haters most people came to this band because of this record and fell in love with this band because of this record, which is, you know, I hate to tell people if they're right or wrong, but that's the right side of history. (laughs) (laughs) People are just very romantic about what they like. And when it it breeds into something and evolves into something that is no longer theirs exclusively, it can be very easy to turn your back on it. And it it becomes like no longer part of this echelon of cool kids no you're so right i mean more universal i'm sure you can super relate to this but i remember during this era during this run of of punk and emo being like the thing like i'd get into the ataris you know and you know i'd go see a you know like like really good examples yellow card like what the first time i saw yellow card was with the gamuts and rufio and Lagwagon at the bottleneck and there were maybe, uh, may, uh, maybe 150, 200 people there, you know, and then wow. maybe a couple more than that. And then I saw a yellow card there again, like a year or two later, after the underdog EP had come up, but before Ocean Avenue. And there were like, maybe like 200 people there, you know, and then like, then a few years later, they're like headlining Warped Tour, you know, and like, mm-hmm. for me, I always have the attitude of like, I'm so happy for these guys. Like, I've, I've, I'm a fan of this band. I've been rooting for this band. I'm so glad that their fan base is growing, but then there was always, you know, I I would always notice the people who wanted to keep it to themselves. And well, like one of my favorite bands of all time is is Steel Train. They were on Drive Through Records, not really a punk band. That was kind of like 
when later phase drive through where they were kind of trying to diversify their portfolio a little bit and their mm-hmm. lead singer Jack Antonoff is probably my favorite songwriter of all time or right up there. And back when they were in Steel Train, I met him probably six or seven times and got to have like lengthy conversations with him about music and influence. And then he was in fun and now he's in bleachers and I'll never get to like talk to Jack Antonoff again, but I'm not bitter about that. I'm happy about that. I'm happy for him that he got that big. I'll just never really understand that attitude towards if you love something, don't you want more people to experience it? I'll I'll never, I'll never relate to it. I don't know. Yeah, that never really became a thing that I found myself engaging in a whole lot. I think it was probably just the fact too that we were in bands. So we knew what the objective no, was. No, you're right. You're right. That's probably what it is. I we knew that we yeah. wanted to get our, our music out to as many people as possible. Yep. So we didn't fault <laughs> bands for blowing up because it, yeah. made, it gave us hope, right? It gave us hope. No, you're that right. That's a, dude, Kyle, that's a really good observation. I've never made that <laughs> observation before, but like, I think you're right. I've never thought about that before. But I bet that's a huge part of why I've always felt that way. It's because like I saw it as like, well, if Yellow Card went from playing to 150 people to 2,000 people, I can go from playing to 15 people to 400 people. You know, like right. yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you're they, right. You're watched, right. They watched bands like Newfound Glory do it from where they were in, in yep. Florida. You know, they right. watch bands like Blink 182 just explode into the into the stratosphere. No, and you're 100 right. That's what it is. I think even being in bands, there was times I think where Kyle Coomer would say things sort of tongue in cheek, but he would say, I can't wait to sell out. <laughs> Just sure, give me sure, the opportunity. Sure. I can't wait. Dude, sorry. I, like I keep like not making us talk about the Ataris. I'm so sorry. No worries. Which you're, is you're so totally funny because I want to talk about the Ataris. I love, well, I went on that whole tangent because I just don't understand why people turned on the Ataris. They, even for as dialed into the time period as they were, because 2003 was three and a half years removed from Enema of the State. I think of in terms of Dookie in 94, and then you had Color in the Shape era Foo Fighters. after grunge like you said earlier and then it was blink and then it was just all systems go and there was just a plethora of bands that were coming out and blowing up around that time yeah it almost felt as if the ataris were after many bands so yeah oh three is an interesting time for it right because i mean like that's about the time like uh controversy noted that's about the time that deja entendu comes out and like there are starting to be records that are digestions of the pop punk thing itself and that's why i think this record really does stand and holds up though is that i don't think this record is just pop punk there is a folk rock heart to this record there is a very neil young bruce springsteen heart bob dylan Dylan heart to this record well so like you know i majored in creative writing because i didn't ever want to have a good job and (laughs) i one of my favorite poets ever is t.s Eliot, and what t.s Eliot did just like crazy is t.s Eliot would just drop references of things he liked in his poems just like a madman and chris rose so good at that chris rose like i want to reference better off dead i want to reference queen i want you know and just like just throws it in there and bob dylan does the same thing you know don mcclain or not don mcclain uh who's okay i always get them confused who's the guy who wrote american pie that's don mcclain no mm-hmm. yes okay and then who's the guy who's in the eagles there's a guy in the eagles who's a don similar Henley. Don Henley. Okay. I always get Don Henley and Don McLean mixed up, but I do think fittingly, you know, there's this Don Henley cover because there is also a very Eagles, Don Henley kind of energy to the Ataris and to Chris Rose songwriting. And I think that helps this record stand out in the middle of this tidal wave of emo and punk records that are coming out. I think you're, I think you're, your starting pistols are totally right. I completely agree, especially Dookie, Anima of the State. And then like, there's this other thing that happens in like, what is it? 05 or 06 when uh, From Under the Cork Tree comes out. I feel like that's like yeah. the next 
wave and in between anima and from under the cork tree you do have this just like blur this like wave pool of different pop punk bands and you're like what makes this one stand out and it's sometimes kind of hard to decipher but yeah i do feel like so kind of going back to a thing we said early on is that what's weird about this band is chris rowe is really the only constant of this band Mm -hmm. when the first record comes out i'm blanking on his name former drummer of Lagwagon and bad astronaut who unfortunately passed um yes derek he was the drummer of anywhere but here i'm almost positive and and like the lineup is just constantly in flux there Mm -hmm. is a stretch where they have the same lineup for about four years and it's i think it's from like the time that look forward to failure comes out until so long astoria comes out but then Mm -hmm. so long astoria comes out they do they do, you know, like the album has its cycle and then they all just disband. Mm-hmm. And then this band ends up in just like purgatory. They end up deciding they don't want to be on Columbia anymore. They take way too long to release the follow-up record. The follow-up mm-hmm. record is a grunge record. It's ch- like, it's a completely different genre of music. The lineup is completely different. And then I think by then punk and emo had shifted again, where like under oath and kind of screamo thing was really maybe the more a day to remember for your strong were starting to kind of pop out and and they just kind of evaporated and it's so wild to watch and to study especially because this record in particular is just such a, a load-bearing structure in my life and in my musical vocabulary i yeah just wild it is interesting to look at the trajectory as far as the members of the band and everything and in preparation for this i was listening to a bunch of chris rowe interviews which there aren't that many you know, sometimes I you tried to find YouTube. some and it's kind of hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. You, sometimes you YouTube bands and you can just find interviews for days and it's almost overwhelming. But in this case, I couldn't find a ton. He's been doing more and more podcasts. I'd love to talk to him. He is such a complicated figure, but he mentions in three of the, the interviews that I listened to that he is the Ataris and he's always written all the parts and he's always recorded that's right. all the parts. He said he recorded all the parts. I didn't know he was a drummer. Is he a drummer? Maybe you I know. don't know about drums. I mean, I would imagine surely early on he wasn't recording the drums, but there is that kind of famous, shall we say infamous video of him basically calling the drummer out on stage and then finishing the rest of the set acoustic. And yeah. then like this part, okay, maybe this is where we get into this is that I'm a Chris Rowe apologist. So like <laughs> after that, so that's like the part of the story that everybody knows. Then I really dug further. The drummer came out like a few days after that and was like, I was drinking a lot on that tour. I actually was wasn't doing a very good job and like probably deserved to get kicked out of the band. And no one ever talks about that part. They just talk about Chris on stage. And it's like, well, knowing that second part, that's probably a more complicated story than we're giving credit. I mean, is it the coolest thing to do in the world? Absolutely not. That's not the time and place to do that. You're at work, you know, but like, so I have had two experiences with Chris Rowe. One was at Warp Tour and it was very fleeting. He was signing autographs. I told him I loved his music. He said, thanks, smiled and signed my CD. The other was a few years ago, my band, The Way Way Back actually got to open for the Ataris and And I found Chris to be quiet and kind of introverted, but like super kind. And he set up their merch. He sat at the merch table. He watched the other band's sets. He signed anything that anybody wanted. He talked to everybody who wanted to talk to him. And I don't know, maybe like, maybe when they were at the peak of their fame, that got to his head and he was a different person. But like the Chris Rowe, who I interacted with a couple years ago, was a very nice kind of introverted, head in in the clouds songwriter. I've met a lot of, like you have, I've met a lot of like musicians I really admire 
and I've had some pretty ugly interactions. Like I don't necessarily want to put anybody on blast, but like, oh, I, I've had, well, like I had a pretty ugly interaction <laughs> with, with Ryan key, maybe like 2006 or so. I, he was a real asshole. Sorry. I shouldn't, I don't mean to cuss on the, I, did you say I can't cuss? I forgot. He was, no, he was can't. not very nice. He was like, he really wanted his cigarette lighter and he wants some cigarettes. And like anybody who was trying to talk to him, he actually told one person to buzz off. And like, it was just like, I don't know. It really, really rubbed me the the wrong way. And I, that, at that point in time, I had probably seen yellow card six or seven times. And it was just like, it was just not a very good interaction at all. But anyway, this is to say that like, I feel like Chris Rowe has like on the internet, like one of the first things you type in, if you type in Chris Rowe on Google, like it autofills to like is an asshole. And I just, I, you know what? Maybe it's totally anecdotal, but I just didn't have that experience at all. And so I, I do feel the need to to say that. Both my bands, previous bands played with the Ataris. So we were yeah. fortunate enough to play with them. Game Time got to play a pretty big show with them back in 2003. And then the American Life played with them twice. Nice. And all three times, I also met him a couple times on Warp Tour and just like, you said fleeting moments backstage at catering or whatever i remember seeing him a lot at the after hour barbecue things he was always kind of oh sure sure yeah, 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 yeah. and he always seemed very pleasant very nice guy he was always nice to all the band members and he talked to everybody i think we went to ihop after one of the american life shows and he was very pleasant i think going back to what we said earlier he's just a fairly complicated person but in the ways that we're all complicated right and he had a moment out of sheer reactivity and impulsiveness i would assume if we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt sure, which i think sure. we probably should he had a reactive impulsive moment that was caught on film and it's probably 10 percent of his personality i know i've been reactive and impulsive and made sure. quick decisions that i immediately regretted and that's kind of part of being a human being i think in certain respects absolutely it just happened to be filmed and then circulated the internet so yeah the internet has a memory for better or worse and it probably well, just that's like, how people view also, him also like we were talking respects. about emo and punk like dude like how many like Jesse Lacey let's like reserve the you know like okay Ryan Key was kind of rude to me once when I tried to get his autograph like compared to like what some of the people in the scene have done so mild and it's weird that we'll like that our brains will latch on to like even just the slightest bit of negativity so so <laughs> harsh you know what I mean like I don't yeah. know I yeah yeah I think it's easy to fix on things that seem larger than life when you're watching them in your wise mind. You know, yeah. it's when you're in the moment, when you're in the heat of the moment. Anybody who's ever been in a band knows what it's like to get in a really vicious argument with other band members. It's a lot of oh, ego, totally. it's a lot of creative personalities. There's a lot of heads that are budding in order to sustain this creative process for a long period of time. And yeah. you're in close quarters with each other, you're in a band for a large period of time. So I think everybody who's been in a band understands it. He got in trouble because he literally started throwing the drum set at the drummer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was <laughs> it's pure reactivity. Pure reactivity, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was watching the video and I was like, this isn't that bad. People are, and then I was like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I remember there was times where I was playing a show and it felt like on stage, it probably wasn't as bad as I was thinking in my mind, but there was times in my mind where I thought to myself, I'm going to rip my guitar off and I'm going to smash it to pieces on this stage because I'm so mad. You oh, know, yeah. and it's oh, that perfectionistic yeah. attitude and you get too in your head about how it sounds and how it may be coming across and you feel embarrassed. I can understand that reactivity. There is a human element that I understood while watching that video. A thousand so percent. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because think of how many other, we were talking about classic rock earlier, how many of those rock stars came out high as a kite 
Right. And were having their own impulsive reactive oh, moments. I mean, like, just have you ever like, have watched a video film. of like peak Led Zeppelin live? Like they're all on so much heroin. <laughs> it's insane. Like Jimmy Page will just play like a nine minute guitar solo. And you're like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Like, yeah. There's that scene when Anthony Kiedis drop kicks John on yeah. SNL. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they're fighting in the background yeah. or they're fighting backstage. And, it's and like, those dudes were on heroin big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it happens. So I think he's trying to make amends he's talked about it at length in interviews yeah he talked about it on the my career podcast a couple times what i really hope is that they you know we're coming up on which makes me feel a thousand years old we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of this record relatively soon you know in a couple of years and i would love 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 to see a 20th anniversary tour that is properly booked and properly promoted and really give this record another chance to really shine and i would just love to see that spark something that allows the ataris to have kind of a a second life because he has released stuff since the two like i always forget the name of the 2008 record uh something about welcome the night. night welcome the night welcome the night he's released stuff since then there's a song called all souls day that's just like really fantastic and in this vein and there's like a it's called like i think it's all but silver will rust or, so, or something like that there's a compilation that dropped that's got some really great songs there's actually a song called kansas city that's like about a really great night he had in kansas city and like when they played in at riot room they played that song and like there's some really great post first wave atari stuff out there and it, it just feels like somebody who's more powerful than me needs to like get their hands on it and channel it because I, I think that Chris Rowe has more stories to tell and I think he's got more music to share with the world I, I want that to happen he's gonna have an album made by now he's been talking about releasing Graveyard of the Atlantic for Graveyard of the, of the Atlantic yeah 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 right yeah and it bums me out to think how much in his head is he to be I know so inundated with the fear of putting this out. I want him to link up with Mike Carrera and I want them to flush out the songs and release Dude, the new Atari's record. Mike Carrera tomorrow. would be the perfect person for him to just, yeah. Especially like, yeah, he's been on the podcast. We know they know each other. Like, I'm sure I, you know, I, I'm sure the MXPX and Atari's crossed paths at some time anyway, you know, but like, yeah, yeah, Mike Carrera would be the perfect person to just get in there and just be like, look, dude, my like my band puts out a record every other year and half of the songs are great and half of them are fine, but we just, we just keep making stuff, you know, like, like, yeah. Well, my career is... My Carrera just knows how to be more prolific and more ubiquitous and he knows yes. how to promote well. And he, there was a period of time where MXPX was kind of defunct and they weren't really releasing anything, but then it's just all systems go. Ever since they started playing shows again in 2015, yep. they've just been putting out tons of great stuff. I mean, yep. their latest record that came out in 2018 and then they released a year anniversary with extra tracks the following year it is awesome. It is. It's one of their best records. Of their, the rest of their I was about to say, that's one of the best records of their whole discography. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's perfect no, I, for this I time and place. It's very adult. It harkens back to their past, but it's very adult. And I think yes. Chris Rowe has that in him. I totally for whatever agree. reason, he is just paralyzed by his need to perfect things or to turn something that is into something that it doesn't need to be. Yes. Kind of like Welcome to Night. I'm sure he obsessed about that for a long time. He wanted to do something different. He wanted to continue yeah. to evolve after this album, So Long Astoria. And that's totally fine. But I think he alienated a lot of people and he just took, he hired on so many and different I, guns. I think if you really thing. listen to that record, I hear a record that's trying to be different. Instead of hearing like a record that is different, I hear a record that's trying to be different. And yeah. that always kind of bums me out because that's like one less degree of 
authenticity. Not to say that like, I'm sure it was coming from an honest place, but I don't know. It, it interests me when some bands decide, like a really good example is like, I think Taking Back Sunday kind of fell into a slump where they were like, okay, we know exactly what we are and we're going to keep releasing the same. There's this like a stretch where they do like, it's louder now. And then I can't even remember the name of the next record. And what is it again? New again. Yeah, new again. And like, it's like they find this formula that's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, the song changes at the bridge. And then like every single song has like a really like catchy call and response. I said you did and then you didn't. And then somebody's like, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. And like they fell into this like slump to the extent where like they almost don't play songs off of that record live anymore, you know? And I think that like that's a bummer when bands do that. But what's even more of a bummer is when bands decide side like that they're so afraid of the sophomore slump of the follow-up that instead of that they end up releasing either nothing at all or this like bizarre frankenstein's monster like what are the ideas we have that are the opposite of what we do and it's like the whole reason people were drawn to you in the first place is because you did a certain thing really well i mean i don't know sorry we're like not even talking about the ataris that much this is great this is really good this is all (laughs) part of it (laughs) this is a lot of fun too this is why i wanted to do this I completely agree. I think you have to find a middle ground. You don't necessarily have to write music for other people. You can scratch your own itch. Yes. But I don't think you need to, like you said, try to purposefully create something different for the sake of creating something different. Or or having such a disdain for what got you to where you are. Clearly you want to evolve. You want to evolve the thing. But you don't have to get to a place where you start siding with the haters and you start hating it. Because I hear clear evolution... I wanted to talk to you too about the lyrics on So Long a Story and Absolutely. Like, I, 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 let's talk about the lyrics. Yeah, because yes. I mean, there's such a transformation there from even Blue Skies. I think of Blue Skies. I kind of skip Indus Forever a little bit because I feel like it was a little phoned in. Like maybe Dude, they were I, just- It's so funny. I feel like, their, I feel like the exact same way. I'll listen yeah, to it, it, but like, I feel the same way. Right, but then you have- the juxtaposition of the lyrics, like you said, cute lyrics and for lack of a better term, email lyrics in Blue Skies. And then you have these very introspective, grown up, recognizing my own mortality lyrics in So Long Astoria. Yeah. And it's interesting too, listening to this record again today, man, this record is just so much more grown up and it transcends because a lot of those early email grievance records where you're just talking about how this girl is the worst thing ever because she broke your heart. And I really want to get her side of the story you know, yes. it's, it's unfortunate that we didn't have 50 female fronted bands back then to give their side of the story. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, there's yeah. a lot of shittiness going on with the guys too. But yep. this one, it's not that. It is just not that. It is literally a man being introspective about his life. Yeah. And where his life is headed. So Chris Rose is a really interesting age when this record is written. He's like 25 or maybe 26, depending on like when the songs are, are written. And yep. I think that for me, and I would guess a lot of people, but like I feel like 25 right around there was a just tectonic shift for me as like who I am as a human being. So much so that like I actually think I changed more around 25 than I did like in the entire stretch of 18 to 25. I I really do like I feel like I was about the same person from about 14 or 15 until about 25 and then I started to really think about other people and not to say like I didn't care about people before but like I really started to think about how does this impact other people how do my actions impact other people how do my words impact other people and one of the songs on the record that I think I liked at the time but like as a as an older you know I mean like almost twice as actually no I'm more gosh more than twice as old as I was when this record came out that like the saddest song I think is just like an absolutely 
beautiful, gut-wrenching, very honest song. And it's the song written to his son who is about to turn five years old. And, you know, it, it's a, it, it, it's this really, gosh, like like he, he admits in the song that he, it's so vulnerable. It's bare, it's naked. Like he admits in the song that his dad wasn't there for him. And he's kind of trying to explain through this song why he's not there for his kid. But then like one of my favorite lyrics is uh, he uses the word, I pre- I, I believe it's I pretend to, to like to have a reason why I'm not around. Like the idea that he's, I want to pull it up. So I have the exact phrase, but. Is it so I pretend that I'm so doing I, all So that I pretend, I yes. So I pretend that I'm doing all I can. And this idea that he's being so honest, what he's saying is like, I'm lying to myself as I'm lying to you that I'm quote doing all I can to be a better father. If, if I wanted to do all I could to be a better father, I'd quit this band and move and, and see you every day, you know? Right. And the, the song admits that I think is just gut wrenching. I think it's a beautiful song. I think it's vocal performance is just truly incredible. I think Chris Rose voice is so beautiful. I, I, I love his voice. To me, it's like a mix between Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls and, and Dave Grohl. And the the way that he can like when he not quite screams but just like kind of tears his vocal cords i just love it and yeah i i think the saddest song is this song that like when i was younger i kind of maybe sometimes thought of as like oh this is the bummer one and not, not necessarily skipped it sometimes skipped it but like now that i'm older that's one of my favorite songs on the entire record i think it's an absolutely beautiful song it makes sense why that's your favorite song i think i hear similar vulnerabilities in the way way back in your lyrics but it's interesting too the saddest song i like it because he's asking himself questions in it too you know he's doing what adults do he's thinking about the long-term consequences and the short-term consequences both yes yeah exactly which life is so complicated and nuanced as it is perhaps he made enough money during this period of time that he can be a father for the time after. Maybe he he thought this is the sacrifice that I'm willing to make that I don't necessarily even want to make. Or there's parts of me that don't want to make it, but I'm willing to make them now because I'm thinking five steps out or 10 steps yeah, out. Yeah. I always think of these bands back in the early 2000s that were just kind of blowing up. And I think about the amount of money that was being thrown around at that time. And there had to be at least a few people that were thinking there's a time cap to all this there's a timetable in which I need to really totally. capitalize on what's happening now. It's just like when you're a football player, you know, oh, yeah, especially player, like a running sports. back. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like if you, you're running back in the NFL, you're like, if I get six seasons, I'm lucky. Like, like yeah, truly, you got to plan like, for the future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like there's definitely complexity there. There's complexity in that song. And I, I totally agree with you. I hear it yeah. now and I actually enjoy it much more now than I did back then. It was totally. kind of a throwaway track for me. then. it was kind of, okay, this is the Adam song. Right, right, right. I We're following the formula. This record is is just so great. I don't know, like, do you? I mean, like, kind of. Do you want to go through it kind of in order? Like, to yeah, focus sure. on the record now. Now, yeah, I'm so sorry. Fun. This, if you have to edit all of this, I'm so sorry. I, I just no uh, worries, man. I'm enjoying this conversation. I actually I'm, love this. I love okay. this stuff. I'm so love- sorry. I get so excited when I talk about stuff like this and then my brain just goes in a million directions. Okay, so <laughs> I want to really focus on So Long Astoria because I've listened to it probably 15 times since we agreed that we were going to do this one. So, okay, the title of t- track, So Long Astoria, I think is a top 10 all-time album opener of the pop punk genre, that radio effect of on the guitar. And you're like, what is this? And then the band comes in on the ticka ticka na 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 na. I mean like, and, and then, and then the first lyric, it was the first snow of the season. Mm-hmm. I still get chills. I, I still, which is amazing. Cause that's what the song's about. The song is about 
the way that nostalgia plays this magic trick on your brain. And this song, it's like the movie The Prestige, where like the movie itself, spoilers for The Prestige, is a magic trick. And I I just, this song is a time machine. It's incredible. It's literally perfect. The guitar tones are perfect. Chris's voice is masterful. The lyrics are straight out of like a Norton anthology of poetry. This song is perfect and I have nothing interesting to say because I will just keep saying it's perfect. Rebuttal? (laughs) No, I completely agree. And man, the recording still sounds great. So great. 18 years later, it really holds up. The guitar tones especially are really great. I mean, the, the drums sound love, great too. The, the snare pops yeah. right out of the mix still. It's really well recorded and it's probably one of the, I don't know all of Blue Giordano's discography. Uh-huh. I know kind of what he was doing in the early 2000s, but this was probably a bigger record for him. I'm sure he had a decent amount of money to work with. Yeah. It, was bef- it was still before the, the implications of Napster and streaming and everything, but it just sounds really, really good. And I did- might be wrong, but I think he did earlier Goo Goo Dolls and I think he did a Sunny Day Real Estate record. Oh, or maybe, that's... Or maybe not. That's Somebody, Or Mineral. One of those dudes. One of those like... Uh- kind of twinkly emo bands i i'm almost positive late 90s that's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. what that's probably what drew chris to him because well, so really did you know they tried to get uh mark trambino to produce the record and he yeah, basically you know what he told them that, that, that it wasn't ready like he was yeah. like keep, keep writing, writing. <laughs> which is crazy like man i mean like i wouldn't change anything about this record but it is kind of fascinating due to the thought exercise of the parallel universe where Mark Trambino produces this because he's one of the great so, producers ever. I, yeah. I read that too. And I chuckled to myself because I'm a massive Mark Trambino fan. Right. He, he was so pivotal in that time period. And I think about him saying, maybe listening to a demo where there's not a lot of dynamics and there's a lot of just strumming through and it's very yeah. Bob Dylan-ish singer songwriter. And he probably thought to himself, you guys don't know what you want. You're all over the place. You're just writing a lot of parts. Yeah. If you heard the demo to So Long Astoria, it's almost like he would have taken So Long Astoria and he would have made that the chorus. Yes, I agree. I agree. But and I think Lou Giordano, Leo, Leo Giordano heard the palm muted guitars in his head and Mark didn't. Yeah. And I think he that that's like, he heard those, like the cars, you know, like the tight palm mute. And for whatever reason, Mark Trevino didn't. Yeah. yeah he just no. gave, he gave the, he gave the record that ebb and flow. It had dynamics because he was willing to really restrain some parts. What's the song? Is it all you can ever learn is what you, no, it's the one before that. The hero dies in this one. He's strumming distorted in the verse. Yeah. But you can tell they purposefully bring the volume down. Right, way it's back. almost like you can hear this chorusy guitar in the background. Yep. I love stuff like that because it just totally it elevates it. everything else. Once you get to the chorus, it just lifts right off your speakers or out of your speakers. And that one, and then the song after it, it's like A New Hope and then Empire. They're basically oh, totally. very similar songs. I, yes. Side, I'm kind of jumping side, around here a little bit. No, I, I know. All the no. dynamics. It's like side B of this record is, I think, kind of emo punk perfection so like if you start at the hero dies in this one which is like slow and like what i love about this one as far as like the album is sequenced this one is the first one that's sort of like where the atari sort of show their hand and go like we can do this kind of halftime shouty almost thrice thing that you guys Mm -hmm. don't even know we can do yeah and when you get to the bridge of this and you're like 
dude, they can kind of do thrice. Mm-hmm. You're, the way you think of this band changes. And then yeah. follows up with probably the most straightforward pop punk track on the whole record, which is All You Can Ever Learn Is What You Already Know. And mm-hmm. it just drives and then just rocks and ends on that, like, the really big, like, I'm trying to you know, like, yeah. it's like the one place yeah. on the record where they really, like, scream and get, like, super 2003, maybe a little bit dated. But I do love the way the drums get into that, you know, oh, yeah. up. And then well, they pull his voice back too. It's not front. Right. It's not like super in your face screaming. Yes. It's yeah. like, it's well, what it feels like is it feels like you're seeing him live and he stepped back from the microphone and now he's screaming, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I just love it. And then, and then you get to like one of the great cover songs of all time, the boys mm-hmm. of summer. So perfectly picked for this record. I have a conspiracy theory that I want to come to in just, a, just a second, but I want to finish my tangent on this sequence. So then that finishes this big, song that's like a cover of a radio song and then they go into radio number two and and this is this song about let's blow up radio stations and fill them Mm -hmm. with our own music which is like this from a sequencing perspective i think a brilliant really ballsy move to to go from like here's us doing this very famous song to we're going to sing the song about how we want to write our own songs and our own anthems and then looking back on today which is so beautiful and mature and does this very cool, like, I kind of already used the term, but I'll say it, magic trick. We're like, it's probably the most delicate song on the record other than saddest song. And yet the drums give it this really nice, and the guitar too, this punk rock drive to it. The pump pa tum pa tum ta pa pa tum pa 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 ta pa ta 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 even though the lyrics are like really cutesy and like talking about like being in love and sleeping on a couch. And I think that juxtaposition makes that song just shine. And then it ends on eight of nine, which is, I think, one of the all-time great album enders. I think that the first time I heard eight of nine, my reaction was that I was proud of this band that I had been a fan of for years. I was like, I didn't know they had that in them. And I like I struggle to think of other records where like the last song, I guess like the very first time I ever heard Hollywood Died by Yellow Card. And it has that crazy orchestral like lift at the end. White Walls by Between the Buried and Me when it like hits those. I don't know if you listen to them. Like, do you listen yeah. to the, what? And it hits that those sweeps at the end and you, and then it ends on the piano. There are like a handful of moments in like all of music where like you get Jungle Land, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, like that's that's like the level that we're at here at, to me uh, of like, mm-hmm. wow, I didn't know you had that. You guys had a whole box of tools that you weren't even using that you were saving for the last song. And yeah, yeah, I just think it's that sequence of songs that like, again, from track eight to track 13 is it just rips. I absolutely love it. Great closer. I think it was definitely a good choice for them to put the boys of summer on there. He seems to lament it now, which I find kind of funny. Here's my conspiracy theory. Okay. So according to like all the research I did, which is mostly Wikipedia, the plan all along was in this diary is the first single. Cause of course it is. It's brilliant. The lyrics are amazing. It makes you feel so good. And then the second single was always going to be the saddest song. Okay. Well, I, what I, here's what I saw is that it was supposed to be the saddest song. And then the third single was going to be my reply, mm-hmm. but then radio stations got a hold of boys of summer before they could even do saddest song and then it took off as like kind of the de facto lead single of the record yeah i 
My least favorite song on the entire record by a margin is my reply. I so like the story behind my reply is really touching and really beautiful. This fan wrote him a letter and said, I'm I'm gonna kill myself and actually attempted suicide, lived. He got the letter, but he got it like months later and he felt super guilty. And he wrote this song as a response to her. And when I was in college, one of my favorite creative writing teachers told me that when something really traumatic happens to you, you should wait at least five years to write about it because you're going to be too close to it. And I would argue that my reply, I think Chris Rowe was too close to the subject matter. And I feel like the lyrics are really ham-fisted and really on the nose. And he doesn't quite know what he wants to say. Like, it, I, so like my being the way, way back, we, we write about mental health and depression a lot. And it's, it's very hard. It's a hard subject to write about because you have to walk this line of like sincerity. But like, if you get too sincere, then you're not really saying much at all. And I just think there's a lot of like, hold on, hey, hang in there kind of lyrics in there that like don't really mean anything. And so mm-hmm. I have this conspiracy theory based on nothing that the label was like, this can't be the single. You guys have this very good cover of Don Henley's The Boys of Summer. That's going to be the single. And I think some A&R person or somebody made that happen. That's that. That's I, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it truly did just like organically become the single. But yeah. It's so weird to think that instead of the Boys of Summer, which like, to be frank, I think there are a lot of people who only know the Ataris as that band that covers the Boys of Summer. So like, that's definitely the most famous thing they ever did. It's crazy Mm -hmm. to think that instead of that, they would have put out this very niche kind of mid-tempo rock ballad about a girl who attempted suicide. You know what I mean? Like, it's... It's hard for me to imagine that Columbia was like on board with that sequence of events. I don't know. I have nothing. It's yeah. based on nothing. Uh, no, I sorry like to that. bring I... conspiracy theories to your podcast, but <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's well thought out. You know, I think it's interesting because I almost feel like you're giving the major label too much credit. I wonder if Maybe at the time they were really, they had a pulse <laughs> on the Ataris, you know? That's fair. That's fair. Well, it could be, maybe it's another band member. You know what I mean? Like the band basically split after this, like maybe a band member's behind it. I don't know. It's just so hard for me to imagine again. And and I don't hate the song. There's not a song on this record that I like dislike, but it is my least favorite song. And it's hard for me to picture. It's so hard for me to picture that again, like the, the parallel universe where that's the single instead of the boys of summer. Yeah. I don't know if it would have worked out as well for him, you know, I read something where Chris Rowe said that the boys of summer really took off after K-Rock started playing it. So it was a bit of the K-Rock effect where they start playing something and then every other radio station follows suit. Sure. And they're kind of the defining rock alternative radio station. That Certainly at the time. Yeah. Yeah. They're the keystone radio station that affects all the others. And they were getting ready to play K-Rock's Weenie Roast. They hadn't even rehearsed Boys of Summer Live. They hadn't played it yet. So they had oh one gosh. day to rehearse it. And by that point, it was literally just blowing up. So it was just that K-Rock effect just went into full gear. That's so and wild. Yeah. And it, I think your thoughts on my reply are interesting too. That song, listening to it back yesterday and today, it actually hit me a little bit harder with the context of that story. Yeah. I thought she was, I could, this is just totally because this is like my memory is shot. Yeah. But I thought I remember him explaining that she was on her deathbed. She had cancer or something. And maybe I have that wrong. I could be totally wrong too. I don't remember, but I I just remember he, he got a letter from somebody in Australia I believe. And they were, I thought it was a situation where they were diagnosed with a terminal illness and they actually pulled through. I think they survived. And you are probably uh, right. I have probably juxtaposed this with other songs. I but but like either way, I think maybe, I mean, 
I'm going to look it up here. Because yeah. I, I always find this stuff fascinating. Totally. But maybe that would improve the contextual relation of the lyrics. I think the best part of that, the lyrics in that song, it might be a little too on the nose when he says, just hold on. Yeah. But when I'm thinking of a friend or even somebody that I don't know, and they're literally on the verge of potentially ending their existence. Yes. It's almost, there's a certain genuineness to just hold on, just hold on. It is very genuine. I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I totally agree. It does feel, but I guess I kind of go back to that thing of like, if you're too close to something, it's hard to write about it because yeah. it does feel like something that you'd say in the moment. Right. Um, Almost which like, like talking him off the ledge. Just don't do, don't do sure. what you're about to do. Sure. You know? And I don't know if that's necessarily what was going through his mind. Again, that's the cool thing about songs. They could be interpreted a thousand different ways. And also that- a lot of people are going to listen to it and have no backstory at all. Like right, they're gonna exactly. know it's called my reply, but that doesn't necessarily say that much. Um, yeah, it could mean it could mean a whole lot of other things. He could be talking to himself. You know, it could be very sort of introspective, like the rest of the record. Yeah, I think the well, best. The very next record or the very next song is "Unopened Letter to the World," which, like, right. I have always thought is a weird choice sequence wise because I don't think that those two songs are connected at all, even though they're both about letters. But mm-hmm. that one is very much introspective. You know, like if I die tomorrow, what does it even mean? Like, did I do anything? Did I accomplish anything? Which is a really universal theme, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I think the the best line in the thing that resonates with me the most now listening to my reply is when he says, it's not my responsibility. So that's my favorite part of the whole song. My like, yeah. I I hope I didn't come out as a my reply hater. I like every song on this record. It just (laughs) happens to be my least favorite. And I also I stand by I think it's a cuckoo bananas choice as a radio single. But uh, yes, I agree. It's not my place. That is such a mature. Again, he's like 25, 26 years old. That's like the wisdom to say that. Like, it's not yeah. my place to save you. Yeah. I honestly, I feel maybe a little uncomfortable that you sent me this letter. You know, like, like that yes. is my favorite part of the song. And that's the part where creative writing major, I think if he would have explored that part a little bit more and a little bit less of the like kind of truism fortune cookie wisdom, then yeah. I would have liked the song even more. Cause I agree yeah. that line, ha- that does some heavy lifting for me. Like that line is yeah. like, Oh gosh, like that's kind of cold. Like it's, it's honestly like, it's a little bit. Well, oh, he's, I love just, it. he's saying it's up to you. Totally. It's up to no, you. no, no, no. Yeah, so he's saying like I'm not a superhero. I play guitar in a, right. in a band. He's, like, he's saying your idols can't save you. No, I appreciate. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think he even says that in the song. I appreciate, but can't accept this note. You know that you're relinquishing responsibility. Yes. It, it, yes. You have to believe. I can't be the only one to believe. You can't outsource your belief to me. Absolutely. Yeah. No. That's because... my. That's my favorite part of the song. I wish it explored it just the teeniest bit more because I, I find yeah, that to be absolutely. Uh, a very compelling emotion. And that lyric yeah. does a lot. No, there's so many lyrics on this record that do that. Eight of Nine has a whole bunch of really great lyrics, but like the very last line of the record of, so appreciate the good times and don't take the worst for granted because you only get so many second chances. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Like I, yeah. I, I found, I did a little bit of research for this and I found a an album review from 2003, absolutepunk.net. And nice. when this first came out and that like the whole time they're like picking apart that like, it's not a punk record. And it's like, then don't review it, dude. Like leave it alone. They gave it like two and a half stars. 
And then, like one one of the things that, that it was critical of it was like, and the album ender, Eight of Nine, perhaps the least punk song that the Ataris have ever released. It's full of lyrics that attempt to spark thoughts or something like that. It, I was like, what am I reading? This review is insane. Like you're criticizing the piece of art for what it's trying to do. Yeah, uh, that wasn't a Jason Tate review because that was one of his favorite records that year. I remember his list. I don't year. know who it was, but it, yeah, it like whoever was writing it was like very much like this doesn't sound like dead kennedys you know like 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 yeah no it doesn't i agree <laughs> no, it, it, this record in a lot of ways it's a seminal pop punk record but in a lot of ways it transcends pop punk especially yeah. listening to it now it's definitely more in the vein of pop rock it's introspective it's, it's singer songwriter ish definitely more foo fighters than it is lag wagon it is yeah absolutely and that's i think that's what they were going for and i think they did an incredible job and they definitely time stamped a place in history with their record. I know a lot of people refer back to that one a lot. I was going to ask you, what's the second to last song called? No Looking Back On Today? Yeah, Looking Back On Today. Looking Back On Today. Yes. So did you ever hear the demo of that song? Yes. Uh, it was on that Warp Tour compilation, remember? It was just acoustic. It was him recording in the back of the bus. Yes, yes, yes. And and that was also one of the ones that got posted to the, to the forums back in the day. Yeah, this was one of the ones that I was the most pleasantly surprised when I got to hear it, you know, the day that the record came out. I, you know, had my parents drive me to Best Buy or whatever and, and got it. Because, yes, there is this, it's so much more vulnerable. Uh, what's, what's interesting is the lyrics are still vulnerable regardless, but mm-hmm. it is a much chiller version of the song I personally am really glad they went with the version they did because I really like I think a very hard song to write is a song like this that is an upbeat happy love song that isn't just totally sugar and gumdrops rot your teeth out candy I think it's very hard to write a happy positive upbeat major key love song where the conflict is kind of like wishing that you had even more time together it's a really hard song to write and i think one of the things that really helps it is the way that it passes through time you know like the very first first line is 30 uh, 30th of april seems like yesterday we bought a house by the ocean for our kids to laugh and play you know and then it cuts forward to um because it's it's kind of like it's hard to tell kind of like in an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind way it's kind of hard to tell what scene is when you know first of no November 1998 I was waiting till you would call something like that you know and then I I love this idea it's very did you ever watch the tv show Futurama Mm -hmm. I feel like it's very Fry and Leela that like sorry that probably was alienating to like three-fourths of your listeners but I like there is this feeling of like you're in love with this person but like it doesn't come out and say it but it's like well we're both gonna die someday the the thing that's in this song that isn't ever actually spoken is that one day one of us is gonna die and then the other one's gonna die and it's do you know um if we were vampires by jason isbell mm-hmm. he, like it yeah. kind of feels like a sister song to that almost where it's it's like it's saying like i wish we had all of this time to just to fall in love with each other over and over again and i tend to be really critical of when songs use the word love i always kind of think like if you can think of a different word you should do it and i think this song really earns the word love because this song is talking about love as this like undying eternal almost magical thing you know and i i think i think it earns it i, I, yeah. I, I, I love this song yeah this song this song and eight of nine are my two favorites and having them back like the fact that this record ends on these two songs and then my third favorite is so long astoria so like i love letting it like loop through and then start back over and i just i just love it yeah yeah definitely went back to this record a lot we listened to this one on tour quite a bit and that was what we would do we would definitely spend time with the last half of the record and then just go right 
back to the yeah. podcast. It's fun how different the identities are. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit. So long Astoria, definitely yes. a classic. Great album. We talked about it. Talking. I stayed focused long enough that we talked about it. No, I this is great, man. Shape my outlook a little bit differently with these albums, which is kind of fun and cool and unique, but which is such I a wanted... treat with something that's so important that you have spent so much time with. It's so fun to like yeah. get a, a just even this like a little taste of something new when you feel like you've devoured it entirely. It's it's so it's such a special feeling. I'm sure yeah. there's a German word for it. <laughs> there probably is. Yeah. <laughs> so your band, the way way back. Yes. I had Kyle Ward on the show a few yes. weeks ago. And that was so much fun. And we were geeking out about all the things that he's doing and and Kyle's uh, incredible. He's a really cool dude. I really appreciate knowing him and I've known him for a really long time now. I think you guys did a phenomenal job and I think he did a really great job. It's almost as if he were a bit of an extension of the band. Did he help you guys we, arrange we the song? We consider him, DVD? yeah, so we consider him a, the unofficial fifth member of the band. We really do. He's actually played with us a couple times. I just think he doesn't quite like to play as loose as we do live. Like his band, What A Rack, who are just absolutely amazing. They play to like a click track and samples and things like that. And when we play live, me and our guitarist, Caleb, we're, we get really loosey goosey and like extend bridges and things like that. And I, I think, I think he has a lot more fun being the wizard behind the console when it comes to the way, way back. Yeah. But yeah, he has like an open door policy to play with us whenever he wants. But yeah, basically <laughs> the way we write songs is our guitarist, Caleb just constantly is just spewing bits and pieces of songs on his laptop. And then he'll send them to me on Dropbox. And then I'll find bits and pieces that kind of spark ideas for melodies. And then we'll kind of ping pong. He'll send like 15 different 40 second ideas. And then I will find one or two that I turn into like a 90 second idea. And then he and I send that back and forth until it's like a full song. And then we as a band work like on the skeleton it. of a song. Yeah. So like, I mean, like all sometimes what'll happen is he'll send me two different bits of songs, but they're both in the same key and I'll go in and kind of splice them. So it's like a verse and a chorus. And then I'll kind of, I make up words over it. Sometimes it's absolute gibberish. Sometimes it's oohs and ahs, you know, and then we make a song and then we rehearse it full band. And then we show Kyle <laughs> and then <laughs> Kyle says, this works. This doesn't work. We need to change this. This bridge is too long. This should be a double chorus and it's very really refreshing part of the process because we take a song to Kyle that we're proud of but that we're not so proud of that it's like untouchable and then we really trust him to package it and make it make sense and he just has such a sense I mean we with that particular band we'll never work with another producer because he's he is part of what the way way back is is Kyle and what Kyle brings to the band and how it sounds that's cool so he can actually produce you guys trust him enough to... he truly produces I mean like like that's yeah. he like he obviously earns the you know mixed and mastered and engineered credits but like not you know some producers don't always truly i don't want to sound that sounds like gatekeepy some producers don't produce that much but kyle is truly a producer i mean kyle sure. will literally say this chorus is too long you guys need it, it shouldn't be a double chorus it should be a single chorus let's end yeah. the song and things like that he's not afraid to and we're not afraid to to hear it it's a very respectful mutual relationship that's really special yeah i mean some people just engineer they get the, the tones and record they may not necessarily have input as far as well we should probably shorten this bridge or can we try a different chord progression here it's cool that you guys trust him enough to do that i mean yeah that takes a, a whole lot of trust from you guys to allow it helps to that we've known input. each other since you know well like half a lifetime <laughs> yeah <laughs> that definitely helps and you guys are getting ready to release it on vinyl too you're i'm really excited about that yeah so there's this new local 
record label, really awesome records. And um, they reached out to us as their kind of their to partner up to be their first band that they wanted to work with. And their whole goal is they're going to do limited run vinyl releases of local bands and specifically kind of the genre that you talk about on your show. Anybody that would fall under that warp Tour umbrella. But what's really cool is they don't want the rights to any songs They like they truly are like, let's cut a deal on on how to, you know, do a limited run on vinyl. We'll make some money. You make some money. And this way you guys have physical media to sell because CDs are just really hard to move anymore. Any more CDs are almost more like business cards. You know, if, if you buy a bunch of CDs, you're accepting the possibility that you might just kind of be giving them out to people. Whereas vinyl, I think, right, especially in the moment, but it, it feels like a little bit more of a physical commodity. And then I'm, you know, just a huge vinyl geek. So the idea that we're going to have a record on vinyl, it, well, it's a bucket list item. I've, I've, I've always dreamed of that. And so I couldn't be more excited for that. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Vinyl is outselling CDs at the moment. So yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, but it, at the same time, it does kind of make sense, especially mm-hmm. if your car doesn't have a CD player anymore. You know, then what are you doing with a CD? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's no flash drives on computers anymore. So. Right. Can't yeah. Listen, can't listen to it. Can't burn it. Yeah. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it's, it's like streaming and vinyl. You know, the medium has changed and therefore the art will influence the medium and vice versa. And yep. that's a good thing, I think. And I like the idea of having, like we were talking about earlier, just a big tangible object that you can have, you can display. That's what I can't you can wait hold in for. Your hands. Yeah. I'm really proud. The, the cover of the album is something that I had kind of conceptualized several months ago. And we just got like unbelievably lucky. We had actually been putting it off and putting it off. And then finally we were like, if we don't shoot the cover in the next three days, we're going to have to use a different cover for our release date and it just so happened to be this beautiful snowing day and I dressed my daughter up and bundled her up in this outfit and our friend Ben McBee took the photo and and like it just felt like the stars aligned like that we got this day that was actually snowing and like it was just like oh man it, it felt very serendipitous and I'm so excited to hold that picture and see it blown up and big in my hands. Really, really yeah, excited about that. <laughs> that's special, man. Yeah, you'll have that for the rest of your life, which is really yeah. cool. It's cool to have a relic like that. You know, yes. I mean, and how cool is it for her? She gets to be on a record. She gets yeah, to and she, ha- she has a speaking record. credit. The very first song, so the record's called Baggage or You're Never Gonna Leave It All Behind. And on the very first song, she says, you're never gonna leave it all behind. And it's funny because she goes around telling people that she's in the band now. She's she's like, <laughs> I'm in a band. I'm in my dad's band. Oh, you don't believe me? Listen to it. this. Why would my voice be on the record if I'm not in the band and on the cover? <laughs> I've met her before too, many times, and she is absolutely adorable. She's got a lot of personality. <laughs> I love she, her. She's, she's got spunk. She does. She's got yeah. a lot of energy and I appreciate that. That's you're, you're going to have your hands full, but I think you're yeah. going to have a lot of fun. She, she's going to be a drummer is what she keeps saying. Okay. Yeah. 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 I love it. Hey, <laughs> you, you know, drummers have unique brains to everybody else. Like, like chemically, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah I feel like and I'm actually not alone. Right? Yeah. Which checks I out. That, I mean, it's just the being able to do three things simultaneously is just kind of an unbelievable thing that anybody has the capacity to it do It blows that. my mind. Yeah. yeah. I've sat behind a drum kit and kind of halfway tried to play Weezer, you know, several times <laughs> over the years. And it, it it just blows my mind. I just don't get it. I don't get it. You'd think that every single person, especially a musician who's listened to bands like Weezer, would be able to do a pat beat. Do Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, get. I'm no. the same way. I've sat behind a drum set hundreds of times. And it has never worked. I would have never. to literally, I'd have to go get lessons and start with very, very rudimentary drumming. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
come close. And I don't know if I'll do that ever, but well, cool, man. Can you tell me a little bit about Bad Star? Sure. Bad yeah, Star? yeah. So that's that song was, so, you know, like I, like I said, in our process, we always have Caleb writes there's I guess there's a couple songs where this isn't true but but it is true for Bad Star. Caleb kind of messes around on the guitar, sends over a bit and just says here you go and and he had written this 6 8 kind of delay he had named the file if i remember correct rooms too cold cuz he was kind of going for an early november we we like whenever we have doodles we always just name it after whatever we're ripping off <laughs> like like there's so many they're called like sticks and stones you know enema but so yeah and and he sent it and there was something about the 6 8 kind of swingy nature to it that made me think it needed to be a story where somebody was kind of dictating advice to somebody else. I, I And it, it felt that was like the spark of it. And then I kind of just started asking myself, what would be worth telling? Like, who is this speaker and, and what are they saying and why? And at the time we were kind of starting to write, I said a, a little bit earlier about um, this idea of this record of like, you're stuck in the present, but you want to move forward. And so a lot of those kind of lyrical themes were in my head. And I realized I wanted to write a song that was me in the present talking to myself in the past. And so a few years back, my my son died when I was when he was three days old. And I had already in my life just kind of struggled with anxiety, but I... Um, I developed PTSD and had a couple of very, very rough years where, I mean, I was just truly at rock bottom. I had no control, couldn't keep a job. I was having flashbacks and real struggles with getting my psychiatric trick uh, medication dialed in. That was like a real process, but uh, thanks to, you know, my family and my friends and therapists and psychiatrists, I made it through and I feel like I held on to, I mean, that's what a lot of parts of this record are a lot about that as I, and I feel like I held on to the core of who I was, you know, like, like throughout it, I felt like, like a running back holding onto a football with three points of contact. Like I'm just, this is the one thing I'm not going to fumble is, is just like who I am at my core can't, can't go away. And so the, the song is me from the future talking to me in the past, recognizing how hard it is that grief is this all encompassing thing that everything else in your whole life orbits around and that there isn't, I, I well, I kind of talked about this a little bit when we were talking about my reply, but I think there's kind of a trope in the emo punk genre to have songs that are just kind of like, hang in there, hold on. Like a Charlotte has one that's just like, hold on. If you feel like letting go, hold on. And yeah. it, I, I think it's, it's well-intended. It really is. And it's, it's so great and it's so better than nothing but I think a lot of those songs fail to admit. So like the point of Bad Star is like the chorus is you're not wrong. Things couldn't get any worse. You're not wrong. This isn't what you deserve. And so like trying to really acknowledge this, not sometimes those other songs can be a little dismissive and kind of say like, hang in there. It's not as bad as you think. Or it's, you know, and so instead the really important lyric on Bad Star for me was, I don't know if everything ever gets better. I just know it gets less bad. And I thought that that was maybe the truest thing I could ever say to me that I could say to anybody else. And I, I felt really privileged that Caleb gave me a canvas to paint those words onto. Yeah, dude. Well, dude, thank you for sharing that. I really, yeah, sorry. It. It's kind of a bummer song. We're a really fun band. Whenever oh, we play that song live, what we do is right before we start, I ask everybody to uh, turn to somebody in the crowd and look at them and say, I'm glad you're here. And I, you know, I can't wait till COVID's gone and we can do that again. And, and then during the bridge, I go around and give everybody hugs and pass out Capri Suns. Uh, <laughs> Dude, <laughs> no like, need to apologize. Either, man. <laughs> I 
Thank you for sharing that. I think what you just said is incredibly valuable. And you're right. The sentiment might be there, but it might just be slightly misguided because everybody's dealing with more or less mental health issues. We oh, all dude, like, like everyone who's paying attention right now, ha- well, some people are going through some pretty wild cognitive dissonance to avoid depression, but then everybody else... Sure. It's just going through de- just depression. Like there is like yeah. this like baseline of depression that is hitting everyone in the whole world, especially America, right? Well, right. And I'm sure the UK is as we're recording this as gosh, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, Everybody's and- fighting a battle that many I- people know <laughs> nothing about. And that's yeah. a bit of a cliche too, but it's so true. And people are all just fighting their own internal battles. And I'm sorry that happened to you. And, and I'm sure there were plenty of moments where you thought to yourself, no, this is about as bad as it could possibly get. I can only imagine. Totally. There's really no words to even describe. Yeah. I yeah. think you're right. I think we're having a bit of a cultural shift when it comes to mental health. We're becoming a little bit more compassionate. I think overall, that's my hope anyways, that we, it is dismissive to just come out swinging with the hold on, hang on, could be worse. You'll get through it. Just think positive thoughts. You know, toxic positivity is a real thing. And it's something that I've had to really examine in my life because I haven't experienced what you've experienced, but I've experienced crushing anxiety and and panic and dread. Yeah. Oh, no. I I relate to those big time. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I, I think a lot of people can. So many people can. And it wasn't something where I could just flip a switch and then everything's fine. Or, you know, it took rigorous practice. It took daily affirmations for years. It took yeah. it took going to that very low place so that you could hopefully find ways to cope in healthy ways. I was coping in unhealthy ways for many years. And yeah. I think that's part of the human condition too. We cope the only way we know how. And, and sometimes it could be a destructive coping mechanism. But I think what's so great about a song like Bad Star is it's going to affect people. So many people are going to resonate with it. And it's going to, I think, bring about good things in this universe that we inhabit. I remember hearing it for the first time. Oh my gosh, that song just, it literally just went through me. And I could just feel what you were singing at that point. Thank uh, you. Cause that's my, the, the goal with that song, this isn't always a goal, you know, different songs, have different goals, but that, that one in particular, I wanted to use myself and I, I, I feel like I'm living on borrowed time kind of like, it's kind of hard to explain exactly, but like, you're not supposed to outlive your children. And, you know, I, I, I went through such depression and truly you know, about a year where I was suicidal for like a whole year straight. And to have made it out and to have my two beautiful daughters and my incredible wife and all of my friends. And I feel like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life every single day. And so that I made it through when other people don't, I feel like I'm living on borrowed time. And so that song, I really truly wanted to write something that reached out to people that felt like somehow felt like through your headphones, you were getting a pat on the back or a hug, or at the very least you heard somebody go, Hey, you're right. This is as bad as it can get. Even if I'm the only person you heard all day that said that somebody agreed with you. And yeah. Yeah. But there's hope at the end of it too. And that's the hardest part of all. That I is definitely needed some part. of that. <laughs> yeah, we struggled with the ending for a really long time. The ending of that song was very hard to write because there was a stretch where it ended with too much hope and I didn't like it. It was like, this is too hopeful. This doesn't feel right. And then I actually, this is a true story that seems crazy. I actually wrote the lyric 
that well, I already said it, that was my favorite lyric of the whole record, probably of the, I don't know if everything ever gets better. I just know it gets less bad. I literally wrote it in the car on the way to record the vocals. I was having crazy writer's block and massive anxiety about what I was going to say at the very end of that song. And I just knew I was like, I have a couple of bars and I need to just say something that kind of summarizes it. And I got in the booth and I, I sang that those words that were in my head and in, in my car on the way over there. And, and I was like, it was a very serendipitous moment. Kyle and I looked yeah. at each other and we were like, well, that's that's the take. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are definitely lyrics that are going to, I think, resonate with so many. And we've all been there. You know what I mean? And yeah, that's the magic and the power of music. So I'm glad you're doing it. And I look forward to hearing more The Way Way Back. I've been listening to that EP a lot around this house, so. There, yeah, I mean, we're we're already writing the next thing. We, we've we been talking about maybe dropping a couple of singles before we do another full record, just to kind of like stay on people's minds and maybe do something a little bit more like, you know, we're really into Blink-182 and sillier pop punk, but we haven't really done anything silly. We might drop a little a, a silly cutesy cool. song out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll be looking out for it, dude. Sweet. Do you have anything else you want to plug that you're doing? I mean, I, I do You've just definitely want to plug. Right? Yeah, yeah, I do some podcasts too. I mean, I, I think uh, especially if you're Kansas City based and you like this podcast, there's a chance you might like my main podcast, uh, Ope Radio, which is O-P-E exclamation point radio. And that is a basically a traditional radio hour. It's about 55 to an hour where I listen to 10 songs by Kansas and Kansas City, um, like Lawrence, Kansas City, Lee Summit, uh, Columbia. I try, I try to be pretty inclusive of what we call local music from Wichita, but mm-hmm. 10 songs by 10 different bands. And I kind of try to give context because I think one of the big things about getting into new music is it's helpful when you have a friend who's like, oh, dude, you like the Foo Fighters and Jimmy Eat World. You're going to love this band. And so I try to do that. When is this going to drop date wise? try to do it not next week but the following week okay then i think i can announce and we can edit this if i can't that i'm actually going to be joining the pitches podcast network the pitch oh. is uh indie publication in kansas city and they're launching a podcast network and my show is going to be one of the first shows on that network so i'm very excited that's, about that partnership dude congratulations that's thank very you exciting. thank you that's and awesome also, and, and if uh, then we can cut this if not so uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll let you know i'll let you i'll let you know ahead great. of time great um no, that's but yeah really cool so I do that. I, I kind of edit some other podcasts. Scarby Q with the local comic named Aaron Scar- Scarborough. That's a really fun show. Disney Plus plus Ben plus Friends where I watch Disney Plus things and talk with friends. You should come on and we should talk about Empire Strikes Back sometime. Oh, dude. I'd love uh, to. I, I would, <laughs> that's, that's probably my favorite movie ever. That or Ghostbusters. Um which is not on Disney Plus. But yeah, and then, it, yeah, I guess I will just really shamelessly plug, if you like the kind of music that's on this podcast, there's a really decent chance you like my band, The Way Way Back. I always pitch us as kind of a mix between Blink-182, Real Friends, and Newfound Glory. It's very guitar-heavy, but lyric-centric, pop-punk, with, with some emo kind of sprinkled in there. We're, or actually, we're very similar, I think. There's a couple of tracks on this record that are very so long the story. Yeah. So yeah, please check us out. And if you really like it, pre-order the vinyl. Yeah, you know, I think like most artists, I don't like plugging it's hard right you have to like be enough of a marketer that you put yourself out there yeah yeah i actually think you do a very good job of marketing i mentioned that to carl word as well i used to kind of hate it i used to kind of loathe it it's kind of like when you do videos i do these videos pertaining to fitness and really what i'm trying to do is pretend i'm talking to one person and just give them something that they can act on that yeah yeah, yeah, very tangible and sort of like you get desensitized after a while it's like this is just part of my it's so part of it and it's like and it's important because i'm really proud of the stuff i do but it's just it is funny because like i 
rambled at you about all sorts of things that weren't even Atari's related for two and a half hours and didn't feel self-conscious at all. And then I talk about the, the record that I poured blood, sweat, and tears into, and I'm like, maybe listen to it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trust me, I understand that completely. Yeah, you can be proud of it. It's very good. So, Thank you. Well, dude, this has been a blast. Thank you so yes, much for Yes, I was on. having a blast the whole time. <laughs> A literal blast. I yeah. love it, man. Yeah. Yeah, you were one of the first people when I thought of doing this. I really wanted to get Ben on the show and just chat oh, with him about I'm honored. anything. We'll Anytime do this again. You want to have me back. Yeah, there's so many records I could talk about. Yeah. So Yeah, we will do it. If you ever want to do a sure. side if you ever want to do a side podcast where we talk about the the lore of Coheed and Cambria, I'm, I'm your guy. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a very interesting podcast in and of itself. I feel like that's a that's a band you could definitely go down the yeah. hole on. I mean, like, I know we're wrapping up, but Netflix or somebody needs to make the Koei and Cambria anime. Like, like, there's just yeah. no reason it doesn't exist. And you could use their music as the score. It would be so good. Sorry. Yeah, I feel like it should happen. <laughs> you know, if Gerard can make the Umbrella Academy. Exactly. That could be such a massive exactly. success. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, give Claudio the reins. Give him some money and yeah. watch it become this international success. Please, please, please. Yeah. Well, well Ben... <laughs> It was a pleasure. Kyle, Thank it was you. such a pleasure. Thank you. I am truly, I, I told you this off, Mike, but I'm a huge fan of the show. So it's an honor to be on the show. And I'm so Thank excited. you very much, man. I yeah. appreciate it. All right. All right, man. Well, I will talk to you soon, okay? Yeah. Have a great, have a great weekend. What is today? It's Friday. It's Friday. I don't know when people yeah. are listening to this, but it's Friday for us. So, <laughs> yeah. Bye. Well, dude, have a good night, okay? You too. It's just snowing.